0: Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at slash Metaverse Impact.
1: This One Nation Conservative government has been given a powerful new mandate to get Brexit done.
2: I will discuss with our party to ensure there is a process now of reflection on this result and on the policies that the party will
1: take. This is so unique an outcome. Has there been a party that's gone to the country for the fourth time of asking and increased its standing in parliament? There is a clear desire and endorsement for the notion that Scotland should not be landed with a Boris Johnson government and ripped out of Europe against our will.
0: You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. A very good afternoon to you. Another busy day on the drive towards Boris Johnson's Brexit deal and the deadline that he set himself of January the 31st. Well, let's talk about how this has all worked. Uh, let's first of all hear from Boris Johnson because he's opened the debate on his EU withdrawal agreement bill in the Commons.
1: Now is the time to act together as one reinvigorated nation, one united kingdom, filled with renewed confidence in our national destiny, and determined, at last, to take advantage of the opportunities that now lie before us.
0: But Boris Johnson's been accused of getting rid of all the compromises in the deal that had previously been there. After he's won that 80-seat majority in the general election, he doesn't have to make those compromises anymore. Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn has raised concerns, for example, about workers' rights.
2: At the very first opportunity, they've removed the basic provisions they said would be part of this bill. That does not bode well for the separate bill the Prime Minister is now saying he will bring forward on workers' rights. Well, the House
0: is going to vote on the second reading of this bill. That's the initial stage later this afternoon. Meanwhile, it's been confirmed who's going to be taking over from Mark Carney as the Bank of
1: England governor. There was one clear front-runner who I had no hesitation in recommending to the Prime Minister. I'm delighted to announce that the next governor of
0: the Bank of England will be Andrew Bailey. Well the Chancellor of Exchequer, Sajid Javid, insisted that Andrew Bailey was without question the right person to lead the bank during Brexit and beyond. Indeed he's going to be staying for eight years, a full term apparently. He's already spent three decades working at the Bank of England. Currently he's the Chief Executive of the Financial Conduct Authority so much to talk about. And joining us now here in the studio is Bloomberg Senior Executive Editor David Merritt. David, good afternoon. Um, Okay, first of all, let's start with the bill going through the House of Commons, because it is the bill that Boris Johnson wanted to get through, and he is the first Conservative Prime Minister to be in the position of being able to pass this, um, he doesn't really have to worry anymore about whether it will get through.
1: That's right. You know, we're going to have to get used to this now, aren't we? We are in a new world. For years now, uh, we've had these nail-biter votes, um, really not sure whether things are going to go through or massive defeats for the government. You know, we have to cast our mind back to to the heyday of Tony Blair when we had a government who could just do what it wanted. And that's the position that Boris Johnson... Finds himself in now. You heard him speaking there, you know, sort of bullish tones. So, yes, this vote, and we've had, I've lost count of how many Brexit votes we had, which the government either lost or just squeaked through. Well, it's going to sell through this afternoon. It's a big moment when finally, after three and a half years, this tortuous piece of le- legislation is going to pass through the Commons.
0: And is it the stripped down bill that, that, that certainly Jeremy Corbyn seems to think it is without any of the caveats, any of the compromises, things like workers' rights, for example?
1: Yes, uh, that is right. He he has ditched some of those um, gestures to try to pull in some of the Labour votes that he needed before this election to get this thing through. Um, some them pretty controversial. There's one about taking in child refugees. He's been attacked over that very uh, strongly this morning. He says, look, we're still going to take in child refugees, but this bill is not the place to uh, keep that legislation. So yes, it's definitely a slimmer version. It's more of a what you might call a cleaner Brexit um, uh, than uh, perhaps was proposed before the election and that's because you know he now has the free uh the freedom to do as i said as he wishes
0: and the royal assent presumably sometime in mid to late january yeah mid january
1: or so you know the bill will have to go through committee stages but um no one's worried about the time anymore um it's going to be that we're going to have plenty of time for brexit to happen now as a dead sir on january the 31st
0: of course it will happen but it will happen only in the sense that there will be a leaving the actual negotiation goes on one of the people who will have to to some extent deal with the fallout of that is the new uh, head of the Bank of England, Indeed. Andrew Bailey. Now, he's he's going to be a man with an interesting task because there has been lots of warnings about what will happen to the UK economy in the year going forward. What sort of man is Andrew Bailey?
1: Well, you know, it's, I guess this is the sort of ultimate safe pair of hands, isn't it? As you as you mentioned, the long decades of experience, both at the central bank and now running the main financial regulator. You know, um, there are lots of other names in the mix for this job. Um, and, you know, hotly tipped was, for example, Manish, um, uh, Manoush Shafiq. She um, uh, seemingly fell at the last hurdle. And why? Well, some reports are suggesting it is the Brexit question as well, you know, that she wasn't perhaps a true believer in um, <laughs> in uh in the benefits of taking britain out of the european union uh mr bailey has clearly convinced the chancellor and mr johnson that he does believe uh in the uh in the benefits of brexit and he's going to be the safe pair of hands though at the helm in case things don't quite go according to plan.
0: And he, of course, was chief cashier of the Bank of England at uh, one of the most difficult points, uh, I think, during the financial crisis. I love the story that I think it was uh, the man in charge of RBS came to him and said can I have £23 billion in cash please? He said yes,
1: of course. That's right and he had his name on those notes as well, of course. (laughs) That's true the signature, yes.
0: He's the man who's going to be having a look through all this in the time to come. Anyway, thanks very much for being with us David Merritt there, Bloomberg's senior executive editor. So, the Conservative Party, I guess, feeling that they are in the driving seat now People who are not feeling in the driving seat, I guess, are the Labour Party. In fact, they don't really know who's going to be in the driving seat, literally, uh, in the days coming because they have to choose a new leader. Joining me here in the studio to discuss possibly what may come of this and indeed what direction the Labour Party may have in the future, I'm very pleased to say is David Cogan, author of the book Protest and Power, The Battle for the Labour Party. David, welcome. Thank you very much for being with us thank you roger lovely to be here um well let's let's pick up on this situation that they have at the moment which is the need to choose a leader now the labor leadership has been well battled in the past. I mean, so has the Tory leadership come to that, of course. But the numbers of people who are beginning to line up at the moment to say they want to succeed Jeremy Corbyn are interesting. We've heard from Emily Thornbury. Clive Lewis has become the second MP to enter the Labour leadership race after Emily Thornberry. Um, the and, term
1: government official.
0: And the he says he wants to win back the trust of voters in the traditional heartlands. But let's hear from the Labour MP, Annalisa Dodds, who says whoever takes over needs a fresh approach. Don't worry, we will... We Sorry, we don't have that sound at the moment. We'll come back to that a bit later. But let me pick up with David on this. The people who are out there at the moment, who are going for it, we think, and Rebecca Long-Bailey perhaps you should put in as well, because she is seen very much as the person who will carry on the banner, the standard, of the Easters going forward. Do
2: any of them really at the moment, do you
0: think, command a majority of those who are going to
2: vote for Well, I think we are now in an old-fashioned leadership election. Because if you think of 2015, where Jeremy Corbyn was one of four candidates going for it, by really six weeks into it, he, the most unlikely of all of them, was so far ahead, it was a slam dunk. And the same happened again in 2016. This time, um, two candidates have already declared, as you say, Clive Lewis, who's interesting because he represents the left of the party that was utterly pro-European. And in that sense, quite different from Jeremy Corbyn. And we've seen Emily Thornberry, who is absolutely going for it as the centrist sort of establishment candidate who is claiming she is the one who can take on Boris Johnson. But both of them inside
0: the camp, they were both uh, in the shadow cabinet, they were both... Uh, Lewis in, wasn't in the shadow in the cabinet, but ah, he was part of the shadow front okay.
2: bench. He was a junior treasury spokesman, and Emily Thornberry was obviously the shadow foreign secretary. But there may well be at least another four or five candidates. I mean, today, Keir Starmer has written a long article for the Insider's Guide to the Labour Party, which is called Labour List, in which he stakes his credentials as a left-leaning lawyer. He talks about the cases in which he defended strikers um, and people who were arrested during the poll tax riots in 1990. He's absolutely staking his claim. And though he isn't announced, he's clearly gearing up for it. He's shadow
0: Brexit minister. He's shadow
2: he? Brexit minister, which means today he will presumably be speaking in the House of Commons and therefore will be getting greater exposure. Um, Rebecca Long-Bailey does represent the wing of the party that certainly John MacDonald and Jeremy Corbyn would most prefer. But there are two issues about Rebecca Long-Bailey. And the first is I'm personally not convinced she wants to do it um, because she is actually somebody who in private is a kind of warm and, you know, quite personal human being but in public mm comes across as being quite wooden and I suspect she knows in her heart of hearts that becoming labor leader at the moment and taking on a resurgent conservative party is not a great gig to have and whether she actually wants to do it I still think is in the melting pot and of course we've not heard from her at all in the last week which you is very have...
0: interesting isn't it I mean yep. because because if you would expect at this stage to be the moment where you you nail your colours to Well
2: the there's mind. going to be a two or three month process now which the Labour's NEC which is still dominated by the left has yet to set the timetable. previous leadership elections in 2010 and 2015 and indeed 2016 lasted months. So actually a quick um, election campaign in the Labour Party means three months. You need to have 10% of the parliamentary party which presumably now means 21 MPs and you need to have 5% of what are known as affiliated organisations which basically means a large trade union backing you. Lisa Nandy may well come through. Rebecca Long-Bailey became, may come through. There may well be other candidates who are actually staking a claim to future big positions on the front bench. So you may end up, after Christmas, having a rush of people coming through once they know what the process is going to be. And a, an impossible question of this, do you have a sense of who or what kind of person might get through on this? Well, I, my own view, and this comes really from having gone to 20 or 30 public meetings myself for the last few months, basically to talk about my book, is actually what a lot of people in the Labour Party want and wanted were a sense of competence and the ability to look as though they could run a government. And although Momentum, the organization of the left, would bat Rebecca Long-Bailey if she stood, if she doesn't, I think Momentum may sort of remain neutral. And in which case, I think it's a very open field and nobody commands an immediate majority in the way that Corbyn did.
3: Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work
0: Quick look at what's making news in the world of politics and what's in the back pages of the papers today. A couple of rather striking editorials. The Daily Express, the headline is Boris must ignore overlord Sturgeon's referendum cries. Frederick Forsyth says that, perhaps unsurprisingly, very much reacting to the calls for another independence referendum from Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister of Scotland. Frederick Forsyth says the one non-Tory party leader jubilating wildly is Nicola Sturgeon as her SNP swept Scotland. But closer to home, he says, she's assailed by lowering, flowering clouds of dissent. Under her overlordship, the five things that affect people most closely and which they care about most deeply, police, schools, health, employment and elderly care, have slid steadily, steadily downwards. But for the enormous subsidies from the saturnach south of the border, from whom she wishes Scotland to split, her position would be truly dire. That's uh, that's Frederick Forsyth in The Express. And this piece on The Guardian caught my eye too. Labour must not just accept Brexit, but embrace it. That's what Larry Elliott says. Modern Britain has been shaped by two events, he says. The banking crisis of 2008 and the Brexit vote eight years later. The reason Boris Johnson is sitting in number 10 is that the Conservatives have learnt the right lessons from these episodes and Labour has not. The Tories, he says, have understood that their response to the financial meltdown, a prolonged period of austerity that squeezed living standards, was unpopular and wrong. They also twigged that Brexit was a revolt against austerity and free market economics more generally. So they've embraced the decision to leave the European Union and position themselves as the party of intervention and the working classes. Labour, he says, got the first part of this narrative, but not the second. Well, let's now come back to my guest, then David Cogan, author of the history of the Labour Party called "Protest and Power: The Battle for the Labour Party." David, let's let's pick up on perhaps some some element from that last uh, piece I read out there from the Guardian, the sense that Labour hasn't really got it. They don't get the way the world is or they Britain
2: is now, and that's the reason they lost the election. Do you think that's true? I think that went a very long way towards explaining what happened here. I mean, you know, Brexit became for Labour a a really bizarre set of misunderstandings because the people around Jeremy Corbyn in his private office, um, particularly um, his director of strategy, really saw Brexit as a conservative problem. And their view for two years was that if you let the Conservatives, and in this case it was Theresa May, handle the problem, own the problem, keep the problem, then Labour could kind of ignore the problem and go on concentrating on the NHS and social policy and all the rest of it. And that essentially was called when Labour decided in the course of the last five or six months that the only position it could take to straddle the 80% of its membership who wanted to remain but that 20% who regarded the Leave constituencies in the North as being important, it couldn't straddle that divide and therefore it came up with this absurd position for Jeremy Corbyn of being a neutral referee as leader of a party which was never going to fly with the electorate who don't want their Prime Ministers to be neutral referees. They want their Prime Ministers to take a lead and I think Boris Johnson understood that both politically and personally which is why the mantra get Brexit done was essentially the only Conservative position taken during this general election.
0: But is there something more fundamental here, which is that what the Labour Party has historically stood for, the the rights of the workers, the welfare state, uh, nationalisation to some extent of, of key industries, that that
2: all sounds like
0: history rather than the modern world?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's worth remembering that since 1945, only three Labour leaders have beaten sitting Conservative governments. They were Attlee in 45, Wilson in 64 and Blair in 97. Since 1979, when Margaret Thatcher won her first victory, there have been a 11 general elections, including the one uh, a few days ago, and Labour has won only three, and only that under Tony Blair. So Labour has always won power after long periods of Conservative rule, when the country was tired of Conservative policy and saw Labour as a radical new choice. What we've seen in this election was that Boris Johnson was presenting himself as the radical new choice. Because he wasn't Theresa May, because he wasn't David Cameron, in an odd way, he presented himself as an entirely different type of Conservative leader whereas Jeremy Corbyn looked like a throwback to the 1970s and the and the Labour's manifesto which was a 90 billion annual increase a year of every policy they could think of, including nationalization of four major sectors and all the rest of it. Free, or, free
0: Wi-Fi broadband and all that?
2: Yeah, but I mean, a lot of it was very, very reminiscent in terms of the language that was being used in the 70s and the early 80s by Jeremy Corbyn and people on the left. And it, it turned out that though the younger generation who have never, who don't remember nationalized industries well, might have seen that as being the way to solve the problems of, let's say, the water industry, those people aged over 40 or 50 absolutely do remember it and weren't prepared to vote for it so you ended up having Boris Johnson looking like the radical alternative and the labor party looking like a tired old party but let me make the counter argument that the whole point about blair which is a lot of people inside the labor party believed he
0: wasn't really a labor party politician that what he was doing was putting forward a kind of managerial um social democratic middle of the road option and actually Jeremy Corbyn was an authentic Labour Party politician.
2: Well, I think if it does, it's worth going back, actually, to look at what happened in 1992, which was the last time Labour lost four elections in a row, because the Labour leader who succeeded Neil Kinnock was John Smith. And John Smith looked to most people as being an authoritative... F- he's a former cabinet minister, an authoritative figure who was capable of being prime minister. And we have to remember that within a year of John Major's government being elected, Britain was out of the RM, you know... the, back, the right, cons- uh,
0: back... Friday? Black Wednesday? Black Black Wednesday. Black Wednesday.
2: And I I remember very well as someone who had just increased his mortgage, the mortgage rate going from 8 to 12 to 15% in the course of one evening. I mean, this is extraordinary. And the Conservatives lost their reputation for economic uh, primacy and dominance. And at that point, Labour looked like it was electable. John Smith then died and was replaced by Blair, and Blair had a very different view of the world to John Smith, but what Blair did was unify Thatcherite economic thinking and conservative thinking about not increasing the highest rate of income tax, lots of other indirect taxes, but holding to the idea that you had to actually not tax the rich too much directly, but at the same time spending enormous amounts on social care, on education, on child poverty, on trying to reform public services. Now, I would argue, actually, that's absolutely in the tradition of the mainstream Labour Party thinking under people like Harold Wilson but of course it suited the left to blame Will, uh, to blame Blair for years to come after New Labour lost and now it's worth noting actually last week John McDonnell I noticed actually started saying towards the end of the election campaign maybe New Labour wasn't so bad after all. He really said that? Yeah so he was beginning to pull back from this idea that all Labour history was wrong but of course by then it was too late. Okay well if, if, if that's the case and Maybe
0: New Labour had a point. Is this the point, do you think, in the history of the Labour Party where they turn back towards that? Do you think that's going to happen?
2: No, I think, I think actually when, when I hear people from the Blairite era, such as Peter Mandelson or Ernest Campbell, talk about moderates retaking the Labour Party, whatever that terminology means, and that somehow you can go back to the glorious period of Blair, I think that is gone. And I think almost everybody else in the Labour Party thinks that's gone as well. We're in a new period of politics. The Labour Party's got 500,000 members. Many of them are very young. And their interests are climate change and their gender identification. And they are—they remember the crash as the first big economic effect on them because of tuition fees. And actually, they're not going to go back to a Blairite era. What they are going to try and do, and this will be the real fundamental Point of the title of my last book is Labour a party of protest or a party of power? If it wishes to be a party of power, it has to decide on a leader who is capable of taking on a resurgent Conservative Party. If it's going to be a party of protest, then it will go to somebody who essentially isn't known by the wider public. And we need to remember that for Labour to win the next election, it needs a larger swing than Blair got from the Conservatives in 1997. And I don't think anybody in their right minds thinks that's going to happen. This is going to now be a two-term project for whatever the Labour leadership is. That's 10 years. And Labour would by then have been out of power for 19 or 20 years. That is two political generations gone. And actually, it's very unclear to see how a Labour leader today may be the Labour leader that wins that election but, in 10 years' time. But also, David, you've got a situation in which the uh, the,
0: the, the, the Corbynistas, have, if we called them that, have had the time to go through the party machinery. They control, if you like, the means of political production. They, they have people in the right places. Mm-hmm. Um, so to try and shift and say, no, OK, we want a different Labour
2: party it's going to be extremely difficult. Well, I think I think you have to remember that Labour Party essentially follows its leader if you had a leader elected who wanted to change the way in which the national executive, which is currently dominated by left unions, um, such as Unite, and also nine constituency representatives dominated by momentum, if a new Labour leader would want to come in and change that, the Labour Party tends to follow its leaders. And if you had a leader who said, actually, I'm not putting up with the way the structure works, in the way that Blair did, actually, in 97, Blair completely changed it. So did Corbyn, and people around Corbyn who changed it radically in 2017. Labour leaders have a way of getting the party and the party machine to react to them the question is who's going to be leader and how much time do they wish to spend on internal stuff and how much time they're going to spend on other things i also think it's worth saying that when the report comes out on anti-semitism from the EHRC, which is likely to happen in the next two or three months. The Human Rights... Uh, the human right. rights commi- the, the and, and Human Rights, and the human rights, rights Commission, Commission is yeah. mounting an investigation into the way the Labour Party has handled the issue of anti-Semitism. A lot of the people in the party machine and in Jeremy Corbyn's office are going to be in that report, and I suspect that will, could be an excuse for a new leader to it do a very big clear-out. And what will the Corbynistas do? Will they say, I mean, because the, the legend is in '83 they said...
0: It wasn't that we, we didn't do it properly, is that we didn't have the opportunity. Are they going to have the same legend again?
2: Well, there's a famous story of Tony Benn, who was the leader of the left, who lost his seat in 83, having a, a drinks party or a gathering in his back garden. He only drank tea um, in his back garden three days after the 83 election. And Jeremy Corbyn was there as a newly elected MP. And the young John Lansman, who is now who now runs Momentum, was there. And they decided to fight Neil Kinnock. And they put up a, a fairly unknown left MP called uh, Eric Heffer against Neil Koenig, and he got 5% of the vote. And the breach between the left and the centre-left was absolute. There are still people who actually remember that, who don't want to have that breach again. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.
3: Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anker And I'm Skip Bronson.